My name's Eric, if you don't know me. <clears throat> I am the, a pastor at Alpine Church, uh, currently at Riverdale. Yes, I, I spent a long time here, probably nine years or so of ministry here in Brigham City. And I, I just love coming up here every time um, to be able to be with you guys and see what God is doing through, through the leadership, through Mike, through the elders, through the congregation. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And I, didn't, I wasn't expecting to address this, but since Mike brought it up in, in the announcements, I, I will quickly say yes. Um, after seven years of ministry working for Alpine Church, I've been, we feel like God has called us to start an autonomous church in, in the North Ogden area, so not too far from us. Um, it's a place that's been our, on our heart for a long time. We believe that there isn't a a good and healthy church in that area, and so we've felt called to do this, and God has just opened the doors in so many ways, and if you want to hear more about this, come to the potluck today. Hopefully, Mike will give me some time to, to share my heart and, and all that God has done leading, leading up to this point, but I want to get to the Word of God. Enough about me. Um, we are in Mark chapter 13, and we are talking about something extremely important. If you were here last week, we began Mark chapter 13, um, talking about this, this thing that, that Jesus brings up about the end of the world. Is anybody ready for the end of the world? Raise your hand. Are you excited? <laughs> There's a lot of discussion about what the end of the world will look like. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13, 14 through 27, so if you have your Bibles, pull up this chapter, Mark chapter 13. There's a lot of discussion about what the end will look like, and the study of the end times, when Jesus comes back and changes everything, and, and judgment of sin happens. I mean, he changes the whole world and the whole earth as we know it, and gets rid of sin and death and all of the things that plague humanity right now. The study of this in the Bible is called eschatology. Mean, ology meaning the study of, eschat means end or end time. So eschatology is the study of end times. And in context, um, Jesus, this is the, the last week of his life. He's just had arguments and debates with the religious leaders that have culminated to them being angry, them plotting to kill him. And in fact, he will die on Friday of this week in the context. Um, but in, in Mark 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, those are all the parallels of this Mount of Olives, or Olivet Discourse is what it's called. Jesus is outside the city of Jerusalem standing in a place called the Mount of Olives, which oversees the city of Jerusalem and can look directly at the temple. And as we started in verse 1, we see that Jesus is out there and his disciples, now he's not in the crowds anymore, his disciples, in fact, are with him and he's about to teach them something. Um, it started out like this, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then it goes on to say, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are accomplished? 
So the disciples asked two questions. When? When will these things be that you're talking about? And what will be the sign? What, what, would sh- what should we look for? And so with that being said, we've got to understand how to interpret this chapter. There's been many, there's been many, many, many conclusions about what this means. And there's all kinds of different views about what the end times are going to look like. But we've got to stick with the word of God. No matter what tradition you grew up in, no matter what movies you watched or books, books you read about this, we've got to walk through the text and then we've got to figure out how to interpret the text for what Jesus is saying. We've got to look at the context. The context matters a lot. And then also the writing genre. The writing genre. Sometimes in the Bible things are historical narrative, meaning it's history, and you can read word for word, this happened, like a historical narrative. Sometimes things are poetic. Uh, sometimes things are what we call apocalyptic literature, which, which is almost poetic in a sense. There's, there's, there's vivid language being used to represent not necessarily something that's going to literally happen, but something that points to, you know, a spiritual truth, right? And so for me, I'm going to say that, that me and many other scholars believe that this Olivet Discourse that we're looking at is, is apocalyptic literature. So although the Gospels are historical narrative, Jesus starts to tell some prophecies that bring up some Old Testament uh, ways of speaking that are talking about the end times, right? So we've got to have all of this in mind to be able to understand what we're going to walk through here today. And so let's get right to the first set of verses. It says, the day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes de- desecration standing where he should not be. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight may be, not be on the winter, in the winter or on, well, another place says on the Sabbath. So, Jesus is talking about the signs of the end times. What should you be looking for? And what will it look like? Well, first, I think he starts off with this this warning. And before I get into all this detail about what he means about the sacrilegious object of desecration, or, see, this is the the New Living Translation that that we're pulling the main text from. But uh, in the ESV which is more of a word-for-word translation. It calls it abomination of desolation. Maybe you've heard that before. It says, it it means basically the same thing, but New Living Translation is an easier to understand, more more paraphrase or phrase-for-phrase kind of interpretation of the Bible, where there are other translations of the Bible, like the ESV, that are directly word-for-word, like Greek word for English word, and they swap them right then and there. So, That's why I have on that first point, abomination. Before I talk about what this abomination of of desolation or that causes desecration is, 
or who this could be that we need to be looking out for. First, I just want to walk through these verses because we can't just skip past all of these things trying to look for signs, trying to find out when the world, end of the world is. I know a lot of us have become obsessed with watching the news and, and listening to certain preachers online or whatever and, and just jumping all over the Bible, cherry-picking things and trying to you know, come up with this conclusion about what the future will actually look like. We've got to take this into context for a second and understand that Jesus is talking to his Jewish Christian disciples right here. And he's talking to this generation. He's, he's, he's talking about judgment that's going to happen to them. And one clue is this. Many people will look past this and say, yes, this is talking about complete future. Complete future. Now, there's a couple of different camps in eschatology. One is futurist, which means everything that happens in these prophetic teachings of Jesus in the book of Revelation and, and so on, all of that is all future. There's another, another camp that's called preterist, which means past or past fulfillment. And they believe that all of this stuff happened in the first century. Everything, even the book of Revelation and everything, they believe it all happened in the first century. There's a camp in the middle called Partial Preterist. Um, and that's what I'm just going to give away that that's what I am. A lot of things did happen in the first century, but there are future still things yet to come. But one thing that gives away that we know Jesus is talking to them in their context about some things that are going to happen in the first century is, is this location. It says, then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Uh, and he's giving these, these warnings to specific people in Judea, in the area of Israel, in Jerusalem specifically. Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. It says, those in Judea must flee to the hills. And so right there in context, we must not skip that and and we see that Jesus is giving a warning to flee. Okay, so what does this warning then, this section of Scripture, mean for us then? There are many things that it can mean. One is that even though something has happened in the past, and, and, and if, if, if it, was, it was probably said last week that in the year 70 AD, actually, the temple was destroyed. And when Jesus prophesied about one stone not being on another, that actually was fulfilled. That actually happened. The prophecy that Jesus spoke came to happen, which proves the Bible to be true. But I also believe that the, those things that happened, there are, there are recurrences, or these are, these are, there are types of things that happened that are going to continue to happen in every generation until the final end when Jesus comes back. And so as they're told to flee, to run, why? Because something's going to come into the city that's going to cause desolation. It's going to leave everything desolate, ruined, killed, destroyed. They're being told to flee for that reason. And so for us, the same thing is true, but let me spiritualize this a little bit. There are lots of things that can cause desolation, ruin, death, that can destroy our lives, that are spiritual, that are moral, that are outside of us, 
temptations, influences. And so as I read this, knowing that there's going to be physical, you know, maybe in the sense the Antichrist, which many people would believe that this abomination of desolation is, this Antichrist person that's going to come, well, anything opposed to Christ and his teaching is Antichrist, right? And so Jesus is saying, when this comes, flee from it, in a sense, and, and it goes on to talk about a person on the deck, a person in the field working, a person uh, who's a woman who's pregnant and nursing. And what I see that this is really saying is, is, is although it's a, it's a direct warning to them in the first century, it's also a direct spiritual warning to us is while you're living your life, you know, something, temptations uh, uh, of desolation, of sin, of destruction are going to come at you. They're going to come for you, and you must flee. Talking about the temple being destroyed, there is no more temple anymore. But in the, first, in, in the, in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul says that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and look what he says that sounds so similar to this. It says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In a sense... Jesus is saying for all generations of all time, be warned of evil, antichrist teaching and ways of living and temptations because they will cause desolation. Flee from those. Run from those things. But in fact, also in the first century, the temple was destroyed. Now going back to the abomination of desolation, I believe Matthew puts it well when it says, it's, this is the same parallel passage. If you didn't know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life um, and many, have many of the same stories worded a little bit differently sometimes, but this is the ESV version. It says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So now this this gives us a little bit more understanding. What is he saying? Well, apparently the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament talked about this abomination of desolation. And we'll go to it. There's a couple of verses I'll show you. Daniel 9.27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator, right? You see the abomination, desolation. A little more clearly, Daniel 11.31. This is written hundreds, hundreds of years, more than, you know, half a millennia before Jesus came, by the way. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Okay, so this is, this is telling us, and, and it's great when the author, like Matthew says, written of in Daniel, it gives us more clarity about what Jesus is talking about. This abomination of desolation, and when you see this, flee and run, and again, 
we can get further clarification if we go to Luke's gospel. And he makes it even more clear because he's writing to a different audience. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. So what I'm telling you is, is that although there's a lot of speculation about what is the abomination of desolation, yes, this could refer to some kind of future antichrist who sets himself up against God in, in God's temple, but the context most assuredly points mostly towards something's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem in the very century or the, the very age or generation that Jesus is in and he's warning them. And it says, when you see armies, you know that its desolation is near. Now, let me give you a little bit of history about the first century. There was a man named... Uh, well, first, I'm going to talk to you about a man named Nero, who many people believe was the Antichrist that John and in the book of Revelation, the beast that was talking about. This man named Nero, he brought desolation. He brought persecution to the Christians like no other had ever happened before. This guy was a beast. In fact, his contemporaries called him a beast. It says the historian Tacitus um, describes these atrocities that Nero would do. He would, he would capture Christians because a fire broke out in the city um, and, and he blamed the Christians for it, even though many believe that he had caused it. And so he blamed the Christians for it. As a result of that, people started capturing Christians and persecuting and killing them. But this guy was so sick that he would cover himself with skins of beasts and, and they, would, they would let him out of a cage and he would go attacked, attack um, chained up Christians as if he were a beast. And it says um, he would allow Christians to be torn by dogs. They were nailed to crosses and crucified over and over again. They were, they were burned in flames. And this man even would capture Christians, pour oil on them, stake them through their bodies and hang them up in, in a public gathering for his parties and he would light them on fire. This is terrible. This is, this is sick. This is things that when you read the New Testament about the things coming on the earth and coming on Christians, you know, some stuff has happened in the history that I don't know has ever happened in this regard ever since then. But what I believe the abomination of desolation is actually getting to is a few years later after this guy Nero was when the, the, the war of the Jews started. And you can go look at this in history. Actually, a man named Josephus, uh, who was a Jewish historian in the first century, <clears throat> wrote a lot. He, he witnessed a lot of these things that happened, which eventually ended up in the temple being destroyed in 70 A.D., but this man named Titus, uh, who was the, the general of the Roman ar armies, surrounded Jerusalem on all sides and eventually took over. And he and his people entered into the temple. Um, and along with that, they had symbols on their bodies that were idolatrous. And so many believe I lean towards this 
being the explanation about the abomination of desolation was Titus and his armies surrounding and destroying Jerusalem and eventually entering the temple and destroying it. So, that's the first couple of verses that we looked at. Is there's a spiritual application, historical application, and even future. Again, there will be things to look forward to, to run and to flee from, free from, flee from in the end. And in fact, we are living in the end times and have been for quite a while. It goes on to say this, Mark 13, 19 through 23. For there will be greater anguish, or in another translation calls this the tribulation, great tribulation, in those days than at any time since God created the world, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Watch out, I have warned you about this ahead of time. Now, I underlined that part because you heard me say this just before I got here. It says, and it will never be so great again. Um, Some of the things that happened in the first century of the War of the Jews, where the temple was destroyed to the Jewish people and to Christians, again, when the Romans uh, surrounded the city, what they started doing was capturing Jewish people 500 a day and killing them. The history books say that the the street was filled with bodies. Like they were fighting. The Jews and the Romans were fighting in the streets and they had to, and I know this is graphic and there are children in the room. Um, I'm sorry, but they probably hear worse things at school that aren't true. (laughs) Um, but they were having to step on bodies and bodies to fight during this time. So many of that, much of that language of, you know, blood flowing in the streets and, you know, uh, like you can, you can see that, that yes, that must, this, this in a sense was fulfilled in the first century. It says every, every day they were being captured 500 at a time, and they were crucified. Josephus says that they crucified so many people that they were running out of wood and running out of places to stake the crosses that they were crucifying them on. It says, in all, Josephus claims 1.1 million died during this siege, um, and 97,000 were taken captive. Now, if you want to talk about a tribulation, that That sounds like a tribulation to me. That does not mean that we won't go through things every generation. I mean, we think about World War II. More more Jewish people were killed in that than than in the first century. Um, I'm not sure what to make of, you know, whether 
whether things will get extremely worse than they did in the first century or if there will be reverberations of what happened in the first century in every generation up to the end. But I can tell you that as we look out into the world, we can say that this still does apply to us today. But thankfully, God in his mercy, it says the Lord shortened those days um, and he'll shorten days as well for us, protect us, protect believers. You see, the thing about this is actually is that when Jesus said flee to the hills in that first section, the Christians actually did, most of them listened and obeyed the words of Jesus and they fled to the mountains, which was the opposite thing that you were supposed to do, by the way. Because it was believed back then that the safest place you could be was within the city walls if there was ever a siege that took place. So when Jesus was saying this, they're probably like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not what we've heard in our earthquake, you know, evacuation plans in school, you know, that we all grew up with or whatever. Like, that doesn't make sense to run to the hills. We're supposed to gather in the city and in the buildings and in the gates. But yet, we do have history of knowing that Christians fled, but the Jewish people stayed. But this must mean, I would say, that some Christians did, in fact, they, they had to, maybe because earlier he said they, they were pregnant or nursing or they just couldn't flee to the hills at that time. And so for the sake of God's believers, he cut those days short so that everyone, so that they could survive. Otherwise, they wouldn't have. But the same is true for us. The same is true for us as well. There will be tribulation in the earth. There will be many things that Christians will have to go through all over the country. People, Christians are still being persecuted, heads cut off for the sake of faith, churches being burned. In fact, one of the reasons why I'm so inspired to plant a church, by the way, is because there's something happening in the world, or at least in America, where more churches are closing their doors than, in fact, churches are opening their doors. And so I believe that in order to fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples, we have to have more churches in the area. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I know sometimes people think, man, this might be dividing people or something like that. But no, we've got to spread out so that we can reach more people. You know, you can only pack so many people in a building and have so many services, right? And, but we've got to have, I mean, the enemy has churches all over, on every block, on every corner, false churches, you know, all kinds of different other uh, teachings. And that's where this comes in, right? It says, if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, there he is, don't believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders, so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. Now, people are being deceived by false teachings, false prophets, and false messiahs all around us, and Jesus has warned against that. In fact, the Bible warns against false prophets, but the thing is, is people have forgotten how to judge what's false and what's true. 
But the Bible has shown us that it's through the word of God. If, if what they say is adding on to scripture, it is false. If it doesn't line up with the Bible, it is false. If it says the Bible is not translated correctly, then it is false because the Bible is the foundation of our Christian faith. And th- from this where we gather the truth about who God is. But here's the thing. Sometimes these people are so charismatic or so gifted or they can even perform miracles, maybe even tell the future. Well, God has talked to us about that. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it says this, if a prophet or a dreamer of, of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that tells you comes to pass, if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. We want to believe things so much out there, right? We see things on TV. We hear people's stories. We hear people's experiences. And even though it doesn't line up with our faith, we're like, wow, that sounds amazing. Man, that sounds good. It must be true if things were actually able to happen or if signs or miracles actually happen. But did you know that there is dark magic, there is evil out there that can masquerade as good and holy? You know, the Bible says that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And back even in the Old Testament, you remember when, the, when God called Moses to pull the, Egyptian, or the, the, the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, he came and talked about these plagues that were coming. And one of the things that God had Moses do was turn his staff into a snake. And, and Pharaoh says, well, I've got some guys, and they can do some stuff too. And they come out, and they turn staffs into snakes as well. They, they were not of God. They were evil, well, it says they practiced evil magic arts. 2 Timothy 3 actually talks about this. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Janus and Jambres are actually those magicians that are talked about in Exodus 7, verses 10 and 11. They were able to perform signs and wonders, by the power of Satan. And in fact, that will continue on to happen. And Jesus has warned us, even in the future, there will be people that say that they can do signs and wonders. So believe us, believe our prophecies, believe our miracles. And here's what it says about this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, this beast that would be able to do these things. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10, Paul 
is warning about this after Jesus. It says, the coming of the lost one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There is a warning in this section of scripture by Jesus that we must understand. We must be willing to obey his words. We must be not caught off guard or led astray by false prophets and false teaching. And Jesus says in the end, this will ramp up and it continues to do so. It was happening in the first century when that war was going on. There apparently were false people saying, I'm the Christ. I've come back at last. Or prophets saying, this is going to end and and the temple is not going to be destroyed. But they were made fools. And so will the false teachers. But I believe the job of the church, part of the job of the church is, is to stand up for this and to help people understand these words that Jesus have left for us to interpret. Final section, the parousia, which means the coming, the coming of Jesus. At that time, after the anguish of those days, or after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall fall from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out his angels to gather his chosen ones from all over the world and from the farthest ends of the earth of heaven. Now this sounds amazing. Like I am waiting for the day when Jesus comes back on the clouds of heaven and his full glory is on display. In fact, that has not happened yet. I'm telling you this. This is a truth that all Christians believe that Jesus Christ is coming back in his full glory to consummate this thing that he started. He's come and he's going to come get his bride who is the church and he's going to finally bring us together and take care of all of the sin and the sickness and everything that plagues humanity. This will be a glorious day. But there's also a meaning for this also that happened in the first century. See this language here. It says, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers in the heavens will be shaken. You know, oftentimes we're trying to visualize that, like, will stars literally fall from the sky? Some people think that that's comets maybe or something like that, or the the sun's just going to eventually burn out and the moon will fall. Like, we're we're trying to imagine this, but I want to show you something in the book of Isaiah that uses this very same language for things that had already happened. You see, in the Old Testament, there were many days of the Lord. Now, when Jesus comes, that's going to be called the day of the Lord, the day of reckoning. There's been many days of the Lord, though, that have been prophesied when God wanted to judge a certain nation or judge his own people. And this language is used in Isaiah 13.10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. This is what I was saying is that apocalyptic language. It's, it's poetic. It's symbolic. Again, in ver- verse or chapter 34.4, All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll, and their host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. This is language that the Jewish people would have been understanding 
as judgment language. Because things like this were prophesied to happen to their people and nations surrounding them. And in fact, God did come in judgment against them. And the same thing is true about when God brought the Roman forces in to destroy the temple. Now that might be something hard for you to grasp for a moment. That God used this evil nation to come in and judge his own people. But this has been happening, if you read the Old Testament, time and time and time again. That's in fact what these are about. God is sovereign and in control. And to judge his people, he can use whoever he wants to bring about their judgment. There's many scriptures that talk about God using an evil nation to bring about judgment and discipline on his own people. And that is what I'm telling you happened in the first century. And many scholars who are more preterist, like I said, they would say that, and I would agree in a partial preteristic or past fulfillment way, is that yes, there was a coming in the first century. Now Jesus wasn't literally there or standing there, but in judgment, the people got what they deserved. And let me remind you why. Because they killed the Son of God. That week, this week that we're in, 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 in Mark chapter 13, as I started out, Jesus had come in all of his fulfillment, and they rejected him. They even though he was not guilty of anything, they trumped him up on charges, crucified him on a cross. Isn't it ironic that many were crucified afterwards in this judgment? This was a work of God that happened in the first century. And as you remember, back in one of those Daniel passages, it says that the sacrifice and offering would be taken away. That temple was destroyed. The sacrifice and offering, the religious system of the Old Testament of the Jews was taken away when Jesus was crucified on that cross. And now, instead of spiritless, heartless religion, God wants a relationship. But he's so gracious, as, he, as much as he is willing to judge Sin, when Jesus died on that cross, he judged all of the sin, the sin of the world, the sin of every believer who had ever come to faith in Christ, all of our sin. We don't need to be waiting for wrath like what will happen when Jesus finally comes back to change everything. We don't need to be stored up for wrath. In fact, the Bible says that we are not destined for wrath. So there's a view about Jesus' coming. There's several. You've probably heard it before, right? The rapture, pre-tribulation. You know, maybe, maybe Jesus will come and take us before that seven-year period of, of great tribulation that will come on the earth, and then the judgment will happen. And that's certainly a view out there, and I actually grew up believing that view, but I've moved more towards understanding that there's a call to flee, there's a call to trust. There's a call to heed warning. There's a call to believe that just as God preserved Noah, the faithful few, in his ark, when God comes again to judge the world, 
Jesus Christ is that ark for you and for me. We can be preserved through all of this. We are not destined for wrath, but what does this cause us to do? This causes us to warn everybody who we love, to tell them that there is a judgment coming on the earth. And one day, everybody will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. They will no longer be able to say, I don't believe, but the problem is it will be too late at that point when he comes back. The Bible says every knee will bow on earth and under the earth and in heaven. It will be too late at that point. And wrath is stored up for everyone who does not have their sins forgiven by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's so much. There's so much to this. I I hope that you come back next week to understand um, more about this chapter, chapter 13. I'll just end with this. As as Mark started in chapter 1, this whole thing started in chapter 1. Jesus first comes on the scene. And this is what Jesus says, his first words in the book of Mark. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus brought the kingdom with him. Although it's not fully realized here on earth as it is in heaven, The kingdom exists in the church. You and me, all believers, make up the kingdom of God. It is at hand. He brought it. He is the king. He inaugurated the kingdom. But the Bible has warnings for those who are left outside of the kingdom. Are you in the kingdom? Is it time for you to say, okay, I believe in this Jesus. I will repent and believe. I'll turn from all these ways that I've believed, and I will follow him, trusting that I need him to save me from the wrath of God for my sin. For those of us who are Christians, I'll read this and then I'm going to close. This should give you hope. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, Though we look out there in the world and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on and our physical protection isn't guaranteed like many of the Christians' generations before us had to go through, we must be resolved to trust in the Lord to preserve us from the wrath of God, which is greater than anything that this world conditioned us. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in awe in amazement, in wonder. God, help us to believe your words, to heed your words, to trust your warning for us. God, help us to have the faith to endure. Help us to examine these things so that we be ready, that our faith be strengthened. God, that we know what time and place we play in history, in God's 
redemptive plan. Help us to know where we're at so we know where we're going. God, if there be anybody here that needs to repent and believe, help them to do it now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.